This Week at Hope Point. There are few things in life that are more seductive than the voice of false teachers. They just sound so good. Their voice is calming. Especially on people that are living in complete defiance to Jesus Christ. And the church is flooded with false teachers in our culture. You could go to their church and you can laugh, you could cry, you can feel good, but the one thing that you probably will never have is a strong conviction about the morality of your life. One of the most exciting periods of church history took place in the first three centuries in which the gospel of Jesus Christ spread rapidly throughout the Roman Empire. In a culture that was saturated with idol worship, immorality, and fear, people longed to hear of a God who was holy, powerful, and just, yet a God who also showed mercy to repentant hearts that would acknowledge Him as the true King of the world. As churches preached this great message and demonic powers resisted it, some believers were tempted to lessen their devotion to God to Christians who wondered if the struggle was worth it, Jesus reminded them that He would faithfully reward them for anything they lost as they praised and preached His name. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from Revelation chapter 2. Alex June, a professor at Azuzu Pacific University, says, Oh, I think he says, Since the earliest days of the Christian church, trouble has been part of the story. The early church grew rapidly in the first three centuries of the Roman Empire. And the citizens and rulers of the land did everything they could to stop believers from preaching and praising the name of Jesus Christ. But in city after city, the church just grew stronger and stronger because the people believed two things. Number one, Jesus had paid a great price for their salvation. And he was going to reward them for every sacrifice. Everything they lost as they clung to his name, would be rewarded infinitely more. But there were occasions where some believers in some churches began to slip, began to compromise, and people began to figure out that the easiest way to avoid the rejection of the world is to look more and more like the world. Satan does not tempt us to leave Jesus fully, but just to leave him partially. We're in the middle of a study of seven churches of the book of Revelation, which really represents seven churches that could exist at any time in history and have existed at any time, every time of history. We're at church number three called the church of Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, the city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. We're going to look at the nevertheless in just a few minutes, but before we get there, I, and the nevertheless would be the areas of compromise in that church. But I want to start with just enjoying the kindness of Jesus that he does see what they're getting right. He sees the battles they have fought and, and the resistance and the struggles that they are facing and he commends them for it. This is the church of Pergamum. Pergamum was one of the seven cities of the uh, Asia Minor that we're studying 
Asia Minor is just a, a way of saying Little Asia. It's on the west side of the, the main block of land that we called Asia. We said last week that could be all the way from China, Mongolia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Asia. And then over here you get what is now modern day Turkey. And that's where these seven churches are. And this is a city in that region of Turkey called Pergamum. It was a city that was blessed with the arts. They had a theater that would seat 10,000 people. Commercially, Pergamum was known for its production of, of, of parchment, um, basically a writing material. Um, other than Alexandria, Egypt, Pergamum had the largest library in the world. They hosted 200,000 volumes in their library. But what made Pergamum most famous, it was the official city in Asia for the worship of a man named Caesar, who was king in Rome. And in addition to that, Pergamum was the place in Asia Minor where all of the gods of the Roman Empire were worshipped. If you wanted to worship a god, you would go to Pergamum. There was the temple of Dionysus. This was the god of wine and pleasure. This was the party god. If you wanted to go and cast off all restraint, you would go seek his blessing. If you were looking for a god to if you were a farmer, you wanted a God to bless your crops this year, you would go to the temple of Demeter, the God of agriculture. If you were seeking wisdom, you had a decision to make in life, or you wanted God to bless your plans to start a new business, you'd go to the, te the temple of Athena, the goddess of wisdom. If you wanted to just give your allegiance to the entire Roman Empire, you would go to the temple of, of Trajan, if you were sick and needed healing, you would go to the temple of Asclepius. People from all over the empire would go to Pergamum. And it was an interesting temple. The priests there, again, they were blessed with the power of demons. They used snakes in the healing. People would be sick and they would release snakes all over the, the mats where the people were laying. And even today, you can see that the medical symbol, the medical community today, their main symbol is a, a rod with two snakes wrapped around it. It dates all the way back to the temple of Asclepius in Pergamum. And then the temple of, the temple of, of Zeus. If you go to Berlin, Germany today, you can see exactly what the temple looked like. It was 100 by 100 feet. And... Um, it may not look much there, but if you can imagine that particular temple sitting on the top of that mountain, a thousand feet tall, overlooking all of the city. Zeus in Greek mythology was uh, the god of all gods. All the gods on Mount Olympus reported to Zeus. He was king of kings. Um, the Romans attributed their defeat of Gaul in 250 BC to the power of Zeus. Zeus was the god of thunder and lightning. That's how he defeated you. He would just throw a lightning bolt at you. He was a very powerful god in their, in their minds. And that's why you can understand why Jesus would say to them, I know where you live. Or Satan has his throne. The reason he would say this is because, if you don't understand this, but every time a temple is dedicated to a false god, it is always stirring up the activity of the demon world in that temple. That's why 
When we look at our fellow laborers in India and we sometimes look at specific villages where they serve, where there's a high, high, high concentration of temples and why there's so much more demonic activity because of the increase of the temples. And this is why Jesus said, I know where you, where you live. There's an increased demonic activity in, in Pergamum. And it's amazing The air was thick with evil, and in this very place, Jesus had planted a church. Hallelujah. That's what he does. Think about, though, what it was like to be a believer there. Imagine if you had grown up in Pergamum, you worshiped all these gods, and one day you took a business trip, and your trade took you far away, maybe 160 miles away, to the the city of Lystra. And there... One day you hear the boldest, most affirming, warming, hope-filled preaching, teaching, communication of your life. There's a man right in the city square named Paul. You can read about this in Acts chapter 14. He went to Lystra about this, about this time, maybe a little earlier than this. And he was preaching and said, there is but one God in all of the world. And he's the God who's responsible for the blessing of agriculture. He's the God of all wisdom. He's the God who's the source of all pleasure. And that no other gods exist in all temples that are built are built to no gods at all. And then you keep listening to his preaching and he talks about that this God so loves you and you and you that he gave his son to come to earth to die on a cross so that all of your sins could be absorbed in the suffering body of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus was placed in the ground, he stayed there only three days and rose from the dead. And he's the king of kings because he conquered death, not Zeus. Wow. Your heart is absolutely overflowing because you know now when you hear this guy Paul preach, what's happening in your heart is not because of the persuasive words of a man. No, there's something more at work. You hear God. The Holy Spirit is stirring your heart to understand, to see. Your eyes are open. You believe. And you place your faith in Jesus and your life is changed. And now your business is done in Lystra. And you come back and you walk through the gates of Pergamum. And now you tell your family and your friends and your business associates All of the gods of this city are false. I found the true and living God. And all of the temples are built to no gods at all. There is a God and he doesn't live in buildings. He lives inside of us and his name is Jesus. You try living that message out in Pergamum. We have no idea what it's like to live out your faith in such a place. Wow. All of a sudden, nobody wants to do business with you because in the Roman world, if you were not polytheistic, you were an atheist. You denied their gods. You offended them. So Christians were even called atheists. And then if you were a Christian that you came out of a Jewish background, then you were doubly insulting because now the Jewish community that you used to belong to, they were offended that you said God had a son that was equal to God was the Messiah the savior of the world. So now you've lost the secular community. They've turned from you. 
You've lost the religious community. You're in no man's land. Except now you have a home with a group of ostracized, rejected people called the church at Pergamum. That's where you belong. And the whole city's against you. It was so costly to be a Christian in the first century. It was costly to be a Christian in Pergamum. We know this because Jesus mentions one of the people who died in that city. Yeah, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Second time, that description. We don't know a whole lot about Antipas, whether he was a pastor, a businessman. He, the only thing we really know is his name means against all. That's a way of saying he had no compromise in his life. He was against everything that was trying to persuade him to leave Christ. No compromise in the life of Antipas. So here he is, he's arrested, brought before a Roman proconsul, a governor. And interesting, Pergamum was an administrative city. Therefore, the governor had more power than in most cities in Asia. That is, he had this authority called the right to the sword. That is, when a case was brought before him without having any sort of jury around, he could decide life or death right there. He had the power called the right of the sword. So on that day when Antipas was brought before him, he decided death, raised his sword, and beheaded him. And boy, what an intimidating thing that was to all the community of uh, you know, the church there. But what did they do? They said they held on to the name of Jesus. And at that point, they did not renounce faith in Christ. It's remarkable. So up to this point, they were strong. But I think the operative phrase is up to this point. Because then Jesus says, oh, let me, let me just say this. <laughs> let me say this because I don't want to miss this. Antipas, it cost him everything to hold on to the name of Jesus. But what you're going to find out in life is the more you sacrifice and give your service for Christ, the more that you will value Christ. Now my quote. When Christianity costs nothing, it means nothing. So the believers were doing well up to this point but then Jesus noticed a place of compromise in their church. And there he's, for he said, nevertheless, I have this against you. It's almost as if Jesus were an engineer examining a dam and found a small crack in the bottom of this 300-foot dam. Nobody else could see it. didn't seem like a, a big deal. But you know what happens to small cracks in dams? They turn into big cracks and then the result is catastrophic. So what was, the catas, you know, what was the crack in the dam? Well, it was compromise. It was compromise. They weren't abandoning Jesus fully, just partially. And this is how it happened. Jesus says, There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We talked about the Nicolaitans a couple churches ago, so we don't need to go back there other than to rehearse 
One statement that we said about them. They had this weird belief that your body didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was your soul. Therefore, you could believe God and love God in your head, but live wild with your body because your body didn't matter. So you sort of look at even 21st century Western culture. There's a lot of Nicolaitan belief in that, isn't it? I can say I believe in Christ, but it doesn't matter what I do with my body. It doesn't matter what I do to my body. That's Nicolaitan um, culture. But really the star of this show at this point is Balaam. How he coerced the church to compromise. You may not know a lot about him. His story is told in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. It's worth the read this afternoon, but it's a long read. I'll just give you sort of a Reader's Digest version. Balaam was a prophet in Israel, which were God's people in the Old Testament. Balak was a king of a region called Moab. And Israel was on the move at this time, sort of um, taking over all of this land that God was giving them. Well, as they approached the land of Moab, the king said, I don't want you know, Israel to take over my land, so I'm going to see if I can cut a deal with the priest of Israel. And he went to him and said, listen, I would like to pay you some money that if you could somehow, I know you have this power of words because you're a prophet, would you curse Israel as they try to engage my people in war so they fail? Let's try to buy him off. And so Balaam looked all righteous and everything and said, no, I can't ever do that. I can't use my words to produce, pronounce curses on God's people. And man, over and over again, this guy Balak, he was persistent and so it looked like as you read the end of the story, like, okay, Balaam stood strong. But then you read this verse here. You read Deuteronomy 31, and, and you could start adding it up. This is what Balaam did. He said, I don't have to curse them. Just go encourage your women to go seduce the men of Israel, and they'll fold just like that. Sex will get them. Not war, sex. And so all the women of Moab came and Israel, all the men, just started having all sorts of immorality with them. And eventually, the Lord's anger was so high that 24,000 Israelite men died as a result. Not just because of the sexual immorality, but when they were engaging in this, they also were worshiping the gods, with these women, worshiping the gods of the Moabite women. And it's amazing that all of this happened because a preacher, a false preacher named Balaam wanted to make money. So this is what's happening in the church of Pergamum. False preachers motivated by money had come in and had begun to teach the people there's a way to get around this suffering that you just saw with Antipas. You just need to chill out a little bit, be a little bit more like the world, and the world will not pay attention to you. Just adopt a little bit more of the lifestyle 
of the world. So these false teachers were basically promoting unholiness, worldliness for financial gain. And the church was eating it up. This is probably how how their message went in Pergamum. They went to the people and said, you know, all of these people that are going to this temple, the altar of Zeus, uh, or the altar of Trajan, and you know all of the, the temple prostitutes that are there, and they're involved in all of this open immorality, Uh, Yeah, maybe that's not the best thing to do, but you can still go there and you can enjoy some of the celebrations there and some of the feast if you just turn your back to the immoral things that are happening. It's okay to go eat in the temple. Now, this is not like what Paul confronted in Corinth when they said, can I buy food that has been blessed in the temple? and take it home to eat. No, no. These false prophets were saying, you can go and you can eat while immorality is taking place from you five feet away. It's okay. As a matter of fact, the people of Pergamum will think better of you as a church if you're starting to blend in a little bit with their customs and their, their culture. There was no message from the, from the false prophets that's all over scripture, be holy for I am holy, be different as I am different. You know, the false prophets would never come in and tell the church of Pergamum, uh, you need to deny Jesus as Lord. They never would say it like that. They would say something like this. A church, you know, Antipas, we love him, good brother, but he was a little bit fanatical. He just was really into it, into Jesus a little too much. He spoke when he could have been silent. If he would have tried a little bit harder, he didn't have to take such stands all the time. And he lost his life. He could have, he could have had his wife now. He could have had children now. Just chill out a little bit. So the false prophets were saying, if you would be more, show more love to the, the people of the culture, if you could identify yourself as being more peaceful, less rigid, every now and then participate in a pagan festival. Basically, the false prophet said, live in both worlds at the same time. It's okay. Because you know, listen, I'm talking to people. You know your flesh is telling you that right now. This is our battle every day. Think about if you went to church and I affirmed that for you. I mean, your flesh is already telling you to compromise. Just think if your preacher also said, yeah, take it easy, be more like the world. There are a few things in life that are more seductive than the voice of false teachers. They just sound so good. Their voice is calming. Especially on people that are living in complete defiance to Jesus Christ. And the church is flooded with false teachers in our culture. You can go to their church and you can laugh, you can cry, you can feel good, but the one thing that you probably will never have is a strong conviction about the morality of your life. They're masters of using language to deceive people. 
because they make money off of it. The larger the church, the larger the crowd, the larger their salary. And so they just make up new messages and avoid messages like this. Just think about the message I'm preaching to you. How well do you think this would go on, over on some of the largest churches in America today? In Dallas or Chicago, New York. My goodness, in some of these churches, you could not even read the Bible text of Revelation without people freaking out. What are you talking about? The city where Satan lives. So, they changed everything to make the church more acceptable in the world. You guys know I'm a fan of the satirical website, Babylon Bee. So, in December, I was reading a spoof news article that I thought related a lot to what we were talking about. I want to share it with you. It said, hilarious Sunday morning comedy routine interrupted by Bible verse. And then they always write a fake article with it. It said, local preacher Timothy Hodges had the crowd erupting in violent laughter on Sunday before completely bombing by referring to Mark 9.43. Susie Chaplin said, I was laughing so much my stomach hurt, but then out of the nowhere, he started preaching from the Bible. Charles Williams, a newer member of the church, said, I just had to get up and leave. Why did he have to kill the mood? Pastor Joe Thomas says, next week, I promise you, we will have no Bible verses. We want you all to be loved, and we want you all to laugh. That's the best way to spread the gospel. So, you know, we laugh at satire because it's a way for us to grieve. Something is true, and we, it's just so hard that it's true. We, we laugh. Now, obviously, Jesus... Jesus wasn't laughing at the false preaching and the people accommodating. And so he said in Revelation 2.16, repent of this. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I'll fight against them, the false prophets, and those who are allowing it with the sword of my mouth. So the question would be asked now, what does that mean that Jesus would fight against anybody with the sword of his mouth? Well, let me tell you, in the Greek, it means he'll fight against you with the sword of his mouth. <laughs> It means, it means what it means. Do you know how Balaam died in the Old Testament? By the sword. You can read, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, the future of a false prophet is a terrible end. And the future for a church that accommodates a false prophet is a terrible end. And Jesus loves us enough to warn us about this end. This warning here comes from the most loving mouth that has ever spoken in history, Jesus Christ which just teaches us that love means we also warn. But not much warning going on today. Endless messages of, hey, God is for you. His favor is going to bless your business. God's going to heal you. He's going to prosper you in finances. 
Even while you're living in sin, he's for you. You just won't find that teaching in the Bible. You won't find it in the book of Revelation. So what do you do in a world that says compromise, compromise, compromise? Because all of you, you just you get it everywhere. College kids, our high school students, middle school, your work, compromise. And then you, churches are filled with some of the greatest communicators in America today are men who promote compromise with the world. So you get hit from it everywhere. What do you do? Well, you listen to Jesus. And you believe him when he says, what I offer you in heaven is infinitely better than any reward you would get on earth by compromising. This is what he said to the church at Pergamum. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious or the one who resists compromise. I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So we have three promises to the person who holds on to Jesus and doesn't compromise his faith. Three promises. I'll give you a hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. And so you've come to church and say, well, tell me what that means. I don't exactly know. I have a few guesses. They're educated guesses. But I will always, when I'm teaching the book of Revelation, tell you, it is a little bit mysterious. Let's start with the white stone. What could that be? Well, history is not inundated with this, but there's a few references to this. That if you were charged with a crime and you went to court and you were acquitted and declared not guilty, in some courts the judge would give you a white stone and then when you would go out in the community and people who might have thought you were guilty ask you, I thought you were guilty, you hold up the white stone and say, no, I'm not guilty. This is what Jesus does. Because if we know anything about white, the color white in the book of Revelation, the book of Isaiah, many places in the Bible, white refers to purity, to God's holiness, his righteousness. You could read the end of the book of Revelation about what the church is dressed in, white robes, pure. So Jesus Christ gives you this white stone. No matter what you've done in life, if you have committed one billion sins, even the same sin one trillion times, and you come to Jesus and your heart is broken and said, would you forgive me? No matter how much filth is in your heart, he says, let me give you a white stone. Let me give you my purity. Let me give you my forgiveness. Let me give you my righteousness. You are as white as fresh snow. Not guilty. So that's my guess on the white stone. You're not guilty because Christ took your guilt on the cross. New name is a little bit easier to guess at that because we see God giving new names to people all the time in the Bible. He's really into that. <clears throat> new name. I'm going to give you a new name. He changed Abram's name to Abraham. Changed Jacob's name to Israel. Simon's name he changed to Peter. And even James and John, two of his disciples, he gave them nicknames. Called them the sons of thunder. So 
This is what I know about names. In the Bible, when there was a change of name, it meant there's a change of mission. The trajectory of your life is different. You might have not had any purpose on Monday. You meet Christ Monday night. Everything's different. You got a new purpose, life, mission on Tuesday. Living for him, not living for self. Just not only has he made you new, he's given you a new calling. So therefore, he's going to give you a new name to celebrate that. New direction. I mean, even when I look at James and John and their new names, it even makes me know something else about a new name. There's really nothing... There's nothing better in life than, than having a nickname. I mean, if it's a good one. And let, me, let me explain what I mean by that. James and John had nicknames. You remember there was an instance when they were walking around with Jesus and the people, there was a village in Samaria that would not let Jesus pass through. And James and John looked at Jesus and said, this would be an ideal time if we called down some lightning bolts from heaven and set the city on fire. And Jesus said, what you think? <laughs> Let's pray for the city instead. But he gave them the name that day, Sons of Thunder. Tongue, sort of tongue-in-cheek, like, boy, you guys have passion. Let's just use that passion in prayer. Let's use that passion for courageous evangelism. Let's use this passion for outrageous giving to the cause of world missions. You want to be crazy? Yeah, good. Go do it for the sake of telling the gospel in the hardest places of the world. I, got, I give nicknames to everybody. Um, our youth pastor, Dan, his name is Danny V. Uh, nobody in my life has their same name. Even Ronnie has renamed me. He's given me, he never calls me Richard. It's always Ricardo. Or <laughs> We were on a mission trip in Guatemala and he changed it there to Guando. <laughs> Anytime Ronnie asks me how I'm doing, I answer with the only two Spanish words I know, Siete Nueve. <laughs> That's one of my nicknames. Dean, love my nickname for Dean. All the staff has this nickname for Dean. The brother can do anything. You ask him any video project or music project or all these wires, it's like he's magic. What you're experiencing today was the result of a week of running wires and thinking about how the graphics and the light and then even making video announcements that would be interesting. They're just When you watch him start, you go, this isn't going to end well, and then magic happens. So we call Dean Houdini. This is what nicknames are. This is what all, they're names of endearment. They're names of love. That you know somebody so well. You care about them. You know them so deeply. You give them a new name. This is what all of this is wrapped up in this new name that Jesus is going to give you. How much he knows you. How much he's been watching you. How much he's been helping you. How much he's grateful for your service to him. He knows. And a lot of times in the Roman world, when a, a warrior would come back from the battlefield and they had achieved a great victory, they would be given a new name in light of their victory, in light of what they did in war. And just think about that. What if, you know, the Bible says when we die, our deeds follow us. That's not a threat. That's a good thing. 
like all the cups of coffee that have been made, the babies that have been held, the money that's been given. Jesus said, I saw it. Your deeds follow you. That's a good thing. Let's do as many good deeds as we can in Christ's name if they follow us. And so then Jesus, they come before Jesus and it could be like that Roman warrior that he looks at all those deeds and says, I'm going to give you a new name based on how I saw you live your life, what you live for. In several churches I've pastored, uh, I've had a couple guys that were just uncomfortable with calling me Richard. So they just wouldn't do it, and so they, they called me preacher. And I, I love that. I, it's, it's great because it's a, a name that could be a name of derision in the world, but it's in the eyes of God that's quite a compliment. One who preaches, preacher. And I think about when I get to heaven... And I stand before Jesus Christ and he is loving me and smiling at me and he looks at me and he says, you know what? He said, for 35 years, I watched you every week at the office and I watched you go at it again on Saturday, well into Saturday night. I watched you get up early Sunday morning and add a few more things. He said, I watched and I appreciated what you, do, what you did for my people to feed them so their time wouldn't be wasted on Sunday morning when it was your time to teach. He said, do you mind if eternity, I just call you preacher. Wow. I don't know what my name is going to be in heaven. He can call me anything he wants if he just lets me in. But what if it was preacher? And how cool it is that the giving of the new name is tied in Revelation 2 to the holding on to Jesus' name. Those who hold on to his name are given a new name. So hold on. So this brings us to our final reward. He's going to give you hidden manna. You can think of that as bread. It's a bread-like subject, substance. Let me tell you, when Caesar Augustus threw parties in the Roman Empire, there were always six course meals. People feasted with Caesar. And all the elites were invited. If you had money, you had a name, Yet status, you were invited to Caesar's party. Guess who never was invited to any of the parties? Christians. They never went to a place to feast. And Jesus says, but the best feast of all is the one that I'm preparing in heaven. And the only people that are invited are Christians. The poor, the rejected, all around the world today, people with no money, people living having been cast out from their, their communities because of their faith in Christ are invited to the greatest feast of all in, in heaven. You may not know the term manna if you're new to church. The reason why Jesus calls this hidden manna is because of something that happened in the Old Testament. God's people traveled for 40 years through the wilderness. 40 years you run out of food, but they didn't run out of food because in Deuteronomy 8.3, the Bible says that day after day, God provided them with manna. And it was humbling because they had to wait on it. Like every night they would go to bed and there was no food. Wow. None. But while they slept and when the sun rose in the morning, God rained down bread in their front yard. And that's why he calls it hidden manna because for them it was hidden 
It's not something they could see at night, but only when they needed it did God provide satisfying bread. So this is what Jesus is saying. On this earth, what God has in store for you, the satisfying, the most satisfying joys of all, right now they're hidden to you. You've not gotten to eat them yet. Like the world right now, unbelieving, arrogant, self-sufficient, people of great status, they can buy anything they want and eat anything they want, and they do. But these are the last meals of pleasure they're going to have. And we, or the church, not really we, but the church around the world that's suffering so much for not compromising, Jesus is preparing for them an eternity of satisfying pleasures. Let me tell you something. There are legitimate desires that are in your heart right now that are never going to be filled. Longings, cryings out that God is, you're going to die longing for this. Circumstances have prevented you from having this longing met. Barriers are in the way. And the moment you die, all those barriers are shattered and the deepest longings of your heart are at that moment fulfilled by Jesus. But not before. I love this phrase when in the, the, the top verse where Jesus said, I'm actually going to be the one that gives you the bread in heaven. I mean, it's not like you're standing in line and people are passing out satisfaction. No, no. You go to his throne and Jesus himself gives it to you. Because you know what I think he's given to you in that moment? Himself. That's what I think every time we see at the end of these churches where Jesus says, last week I'm going to give you the crown of life. Uh, Prior to that he said, I'm going to give you the paradise and the tree of life. I think every one of those are another way of saying it. Jesus I'm going to give you myself. The fullness of my beauty, the fullness of my pleasures, I'm giving you. You're going to see me for the first time in your life. You see him some now through this music and all sorts of means here. You see Jesus preciously here, but in heaven you see him fully. And I hope you're going there. I would say this to you. If you don't enjoy feasting on the pleasures of Jesus now, you won't enjoy feasting on the pleasures of Jesus in heaven. And that's why you won't be there. If you enjoy eating Christ now, then heaven is just a continuation of that. Jesus really told us that there's not bread in heaven that's special. He's the special one. He told us that in John chapter 6, right after he gave a bunch of hungry people a bunch of bread. He explained to them what it's all about. John six thirty four: the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. The reward you seek in life is Jesus. He's that good. He's that satisfying. And he gives us a little glimpse Five chapters after this in Revelation, a little glimpse of what it's like to eat before his throne of infinite pleasure. 
Revelation 7, after this, I looked there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. You just think about all the people who are suffering for Christ in the world now. Christians who are locked in railroad cars in Iran. You think about our dear many brothers and sisters in India have nothing. They've lost a lot of things. They've lost their life. You think about brothers and sisters in Nigeria, so persecuted last year. In fact, 260,000 believers around the world died last year for their holding on to the name of Christ. They're right here. Right here. Before the throne, Jesus is about to give them unending pleasure. Antipas is right here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right here. And look what they're doing there. They are before the throne of God, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.